Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We continue our series on Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers and visit with attorney Barbara Phillips. Phillips is a contributor to the book by that name, which was edited by attorney Kent Spriggs, who I interviewed for Radio Curious in December 2017. Now retired, Barbara Phillips first worked as a community organizer in rural Mississippi. Later, as an attorney, she protected and defended the civil rights of women and people of color while based primarily in Mississippi and in California. Eventually, she became a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. In this, part one of two interviews with Barbara Phillips, she shares her stories and experiences over her 40-year legal career. When Barbara Phillips and I visited by phone from her home in Oxford, Mississippi, on March 5, 2018, we began our conversation when I asked her to describe her experience as an intersectional black female lawyer. One moment that that comes to mind is when I was a practicing uh, attorney in San Francisco, and the um, American Bar Association was um, had formed a committee to address issues uh, uh, affecting women in the legal profession, and. Uh, one and and so several you know state bar associations and city bar associations had also taken up that issue and so there was an effort sort of a national effort to take a look at what was happening with women in the legal profession and uh the new york state bar or the city bar association issued a report on the status of women in the legal profession in New York. And the report was really a significant thing. Um, it uh, went on at some length about, you know, various aspects of what was happening with women in the legal profession. And this was in the 80s. Um, and there was a footnote, a footnote early on in the report that said that there were so few uh, black women in the legal profession in New York, and this may have been New York City, that um, they, they were not in, included in this report. And yet the report didn't say this is a, a report on the status of white women in the legal profession, but that is, in fact, what it was. Um, and that um, approach carried over to what the American Bar Association was doing and the other local bar associations. So I was invited to speak at one of these uh, commission, you know, hearings in San Francisco. I was president of the um, Black Women Lawyers Association of no- Northern California. And I talked about the fact that the inquiry um, that was being engaged in acted as if, assumed that we were all white women, and that in doing so, 
these reports would fail to address the reality faced by black women, Native American women, Asian women, um, in the legal profession, uh, because the assumption was that all the women were white, and that the term women didn't need to be modified by the word white. And I found that just peculiar and and something that needed to be corrected so that I would be visible, uh, so that the experiences of other black women lawyers would be visible, because our experiences were not the same as the experiences of white women. Was it modified? No. What has happened as a consequence of the term uh, women lawyers not having been modified from your perspective? Uh, from my perspective, the the efforts have served the interest of white women. Uh, those reports and subsequent efforts to address issues of gender discrimination in the legal profession and elsewhere um, have mostly benefited white women. And I think one of the reasons that that is so is that White women uh, can can persuade a law firm that it needs to change some of its practices because these are the daughters, uh, wives, girlfriends of, in many instances, of white male lawyers. And so they can understand that the law firm needs to have a good program for mentoring, for example, the young white woman lawyer, because um, she needs that and is entitled to and deserves uh, that assistance because she is a competent, capable uh, lawyer who will become only better if she is appropriately mentored. On the other hand, the black woman lawyer or the black male lawyer is perceived immediately as being unqualified and not deserving to be there, Um, obviously got into law school through affirmative action um, and somehow got through law school and yet, you know, continues, even if this is a graduate of Stanford Law School, White lawyers tend to see that black lawyer, man or woman, as someone who has um, come through an inferior education and is an inferior person. And so that person's failure, the black lawyer's failure, the black woman's uh, failure to perform at at the law firm is attributed to his or her own deficiencies. I saw this firsthand when I was on the um, board of directors of the Bar Association of San Francisco. Um, I was one of the few black members of that uh, board of directors. And at the time, this was in the 80s and early 90s, we were exploring uh, the, what to do about the fact 
that San Francisco law firms had very few black attorneys. And I sat with these colleagues and engaged in a, you know, a series of serious discussions about this. Um, we had people with expertise come and talk with us. For example, the, um, you know, the head of the admissions uh, program at uh, Stanford Law School and at Berkeley. And um, having gathered all of this information, these white colleagues of mine, board members, determined that the best thing that could be done to improve um, the uh, engagement of black lawyers in their law firm was to arrange for the my the black law students to come and tour the law firm offices before their scheduled interview because and I actually heard someone say this in a in this in a meeting of the board of directors this was a good idea because you know if they come in for the first time for their interview, they'll just be blown away by all the fresh flowers. I, I, I was just dumbfounded. I mean, as if a graduate of Stanford Law School had never encountered an office, an opulent office with fresh flowers. I mean, as if this person was coming right out of some dreadful public housing project ghetto. It was, it was absolutely stunning. We're visiting with attorney Barbara Phillips, who practiced civil rights law based in San Francisco, California, and subsequently was a professor of law at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi, and who is now retired. Barbara Phillips was one of the contributors to a book called Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers, Reflections from the Deep South, 1964 to 1980, that was edited by Kent Spriggs. Our interview with Kent Spriggs was published on December 6, 2017. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The perception of the lawyers in San Francisco that you just mentioned, what they felt about black people who were in law school. What do you feel the origin of that misguided perception was? I think the perception of these white lawyers was grounded in something that um, the Equal Justice Society in the Bay Area is doing a great job of looking into. Um, and that is uh, unconscious bias. It was, it was, um, it, it appeared regularly in these Bar Association uh, board meetings. Uh, this uh, one, one discussion uh, uh, was about why they thought um, there were so few black lawyers in their law firms. And one of the major partners in a major law firm uh, said that, well, it was because um, the, you know, the black lawyers 
preferred to live in Oakland. And so that's why they were not in the San Francisco firm. And I asked him, where did he live? He lived in Oakland. And, you know, the absurdity of it was, you know, just right there. And I, I, do, I didn't need to say anything else. It was, he could live in Oakland and be in the San Francisco law firm, and yet he thought living in Oakland somehow was relevant to the fact that there were, were one or two black lawyers in his law firm. I mean, it was, a, it was an amazing statement from a very intelligent, smart person. From your perspective, discussing uh, this situation approximately 30 years ago in San Francisco, how do you see it now in San Francisco, which uh, claims to be a bit more progressive than other communities in the United States? Yeah, unfortunately, um, the situation hasn't changed. Um, the last time I took a, a, a look at what was happening with, with women of color in the legal profession was um, maybe five years ago when, a, when a, a friend of mine was very heavily engaged with the American Bar Association and its efforts to do something about diversity in the legal profession. And, you know, the the number of black women partners at law firms, the number of black men partners at law firms, um, black associates at law firms, um, the revolving door really hasn't changed very much. And that's a sad commentary. And I think it's a commentary on, on the willingness of these institutions to make changes. They're not willing to make changes. What would you describe as the motive behind their lack of willingness to make the changes? Comfort. I have, <laughs> in, 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 in my life, as I have been able to look inside um, white institutions, uh, I have come to the conclusion that the comfort of white people is of paramount importance and that they will do anything to avoid being uncomfortable and being with people uh, who don't look like them and do not have, you know, didn't go to the same schools, or even if they did go to the same schools, somehow they're still different. Uh, there's a, there's a, an insularity in the way that most white people live their lives in, in this country. And I, I'm, there's data out there about, you know, the average white person has, you know, maybe one black friend or no black friends or something like that. So there's still a great deal of uh, social distance between white people and everybody else. Barbara Phillips, I'd like to ask you about phrases like white supremacy or white privilege. Can you share with us your responses to those memes in our society? Well, let me start with uh, with white supremacy. Um, I I think it's a good phrase 
because it identifies, uh, it, it places the problem on the concept that white people are superior to other people in in the world. And I wish that Brown versus Board of Education had identified the injury that white supremacy does to white children, which is to um, uh, uh, give them this false and dangerous sense of racial superiority. I think if Brown versus Board of Education had identified that harm, as well as the sense of inferiority that it inflicts upon the hearts and minds of black children, we would have a very different society today. I think it's important to name that because that is so often unconscious. My concern with that is attaching the status of supremacy to one's skin color. Mm-hmm. It seems a little close to becoming an assumption, a division as opposed to an equalizer. Well, I see it as being um, accurately descriptive of our society and the values um, in our dominant society. And I think we need to identify what those what those values are in the ways that our society actually operates. If we don't name it, we'll never do anything about it. Perhaps as Stokely Carmichael uh, said, heighten the contradictions. Yes. 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 But, and, and I think we do that by accurately naming. I was just talking with a group of women the other day about the years during which we did not have the term sexual harassment. Or, host- or the term hostile work environment. For women, uh, the discrimination that we faced in the workplace was simply the way it is. We didn't even have a legal term that said that, that described it. It was just life. It was what you had to put up with. Those terms, we have to remember, those terms did not always exist. They they were created as we became more in tune with the injustices in the world. And we named that particular injustice to women. We called it sexual harassment. Barbara Phillips, you've shared a lot about discrimination in the law against black people, uh, women and men. And my interest is... How did that carry over, if it did, to your experience as a law professor at the University of Mississippi, which had uh, a history of not allowing black people into the law school? I joined the faculty of the University of Mississippi Law School in the fall of 1994. There were two black men law professors at the time on the faculty, and I was the first and only black woman tenure-track professor. My experience there was extraordinary in that at the same time that I arrived, 
the law faculty the previous year had offered the position of dean to Lewis Westerfield, and he became the first black dean of the law school. Um, it was a very interesting time. Um, there were there were a few black law students. It was interesting to have this experience of being the lone black woman law professor there and teaching students who had been raised to experience black women as people who belonged in the kitchen, not in the front of the classroom, and not being the authority figure who could determine their grade. So in addition to teaching courses like constitutional law and jurisprudence, I also offered some seminars on topics like race, gender, and the law, and democracy and political participation, because I'd been a voting rights lawyer when I was practicing. And there is where I met the students, uh, both black and white students, who were interested in those seminars because they knew that something was wrong with the things that they had been taught and the way that they had been taught to understand the world around them. It was very interesting and it gave me hope to see these young people looking for answers to what troubled them about the very constricted uh, conformist culture in which they'd been raised. Most of the students were from Mississippi or from other southern states. Bringing that experience forward to the present time in March of 2018, what are the civil rights issues that you see now in Mississippi that need to be addressed? Um, the civil rights issues in Mississippi and I think in the rest of the country that um, need to be addressed, they all have to do with the issue uh, that began the second Reconstruction, and that is education. Here in Oxford, Mississippi, we have a school district that is ranked number one in the state. But it is also ranked number one in having the widest achievement gap between white students and everybody else. I also think immigration is a major civil rights issue. Barbara Phillips, in closing this first of a two-part series with you, can you share with us what prompted you to go to law school? I have a very circuitous route to law school. When I was a senior in college, my political science professor, Duncan Baird, stopped me on the stairway to suggest to me that I consider going to law school. And I remember just laughing and saying to him, why in the world would I want to do that? Because I want to go out and, you know, be in the community and be an organizer and make change. And uh, sure enough, after college, I did go to Saul Alinsky's Institute, the Industrial Areas Foundation in Chicago, learned how to be a community organizer and took myself to Mississippi, where I worked mostly in southwest Mississippi for two years, and had an infuriating encounter with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law when it refused to bring 
a particular piece of litigation that our community in Southwest Mississippi um, thought was necessary. And I was so angry with them that I decided to go to law school myself to show them how a civil rights lawyer should be grounded in the social justice movement of his or her community. Can you share with us what that piece of litigation was that was not brought by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights? Yes. I was working in Claiborne County, Mississippi, which in 1971 had elected um, more black elected officials than any county in the state, meaning it had elected three. And one of them was the only black tax assessor and collector in the state. When he went about reforming the tax system in Claiborne County, after he discovered that um, the antebellum mansions were assessed at a lower value than the little brick two- and three-bedroom homes of black folks who lived on the edge of town, and he started correcting those valuations of property, um, the County Board of Supervisors refused to approve his adjusted tax roll. The white elected officials and white community then began spreading the rumor that he didn't know what he was doing, um, and that's why the tax roll was rejected. Um, the community wanted the Lawyers Committee to bring a lawsuit to force the Board of Supervisors to accept the adjusted tax roll, which accurately reflected the property values in the county. That is the piece of litigation that the Lawyers Committee researched and determined that they did not have uh, a winning legal theory uh, to bring that that litigation. Now, as a non-lawyer and and uh, and uh, an activist, I had no comprehension of this necessity the the the, the uh, consequences that could be brought uh, for lawyers if they bring frivolous lawsuits. I did not know you couldn't go into court and just say this is wrong <laughs> and needs to be fixed. Um, so uh, I did go to law school. I went to Northwestern uh, University Law School, and I learned why the Lawyers Committee had taken that position. Um but I still was highly motivated. I mean, my reason for being there was to become a civil rights lawyer who would be grounded in the social justice movement. And I did that. I practiced with the uh, Minnesota Attorney General for two years, so I would learn my way to the courtroom, as I'd been advised to do, because people who needed civil rights lawyers needed us to be the best. And two years after being at the Minnesota Attorney General's office, I did get a position with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law in its Mississippi office, and that's how I started my career. Well, Barbara Phillips, I want to thank you for being with us on this part one of a two-part discussion with you. And in our next edition, we'll be addressing Framing the Contemporary Dialogue of Race. Thank you very much for having me. I'm enjoying the conversation and reflection. 
This has been the first of a two-part series with attorney Barbara Phillips. She has protected and defended the civil rights of women and people of color for over 40 years. In our next program, Barbara Phillips will discuss framing the contemporary dialogue about race. This program was recorded on March 5th, 2018. There are over 630 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.